0: History lecture eighty eight. Rabbi Blyweiss. Yeah, yesterday we met Rav Yosef Karol the Machaber. The, 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 the Maran Yosef, um, is the companion. Uh, even though they were not, uh, they lived in far distant lands. Um, but we associate one with the other. Is Rav Moshe Israelis, referred to as the Rama or the author of the Mapa. He was younger, uh, but lived a shorter life and predeceased the Machaber. his dates are 1520 to 1572, but 52 impactful years they were. Um, He lived in Krakow, in the south of Poland, and originally had written his own halachic code, meaning not the work that we know of today as the Mapa by the Ramah, but his own distinct work. But when the Shulchan Aruch was published initially, just the work of Joseph Caro, it became such an instant classic and so uh, outstanding in so many of its qualities that he revised his own original work in immense humility. Because can you imagine, you write your own magnum open and you see, and if you can't beat them, join them, and then you subsume yourself to the greater work, which is effectively what he does. If you look at the daf of the Shulchan Aruch, and you see the bold, the big letter print is the Mechaber, and then afterwards is the clearly, the tacked-on addendum of the Ramah, often in Rashi script or smaller script, and um, that's indeed even calls himself that if the Shulchan Aruch is the set table, so his is the tablecloth, right? He's just a covering a, a garment, an adornment on top of the table, Um What happened, of course, the end result of this combination, this meeting of great minds, would be that the Sephardi world, by having the Shulchan Aruch, having both Peirushim, would then incorporate Ashkenazi P'sak. The Ashkenazi world would certainly incorporate Sephardi P'sak, and um, there would be an elevation and a unity in Klal Yisrael, like we had in Harsinai, Yishachad B'Levachad, that really, in some ways... Some people refer to the, uh, the Shulchan Aruch as the Sanhedrin that unifies all Jews together, right? Um, any other code would have been simply an individual, and there were a number of outstanding codes that came out around the same time. Uh, one that comes to my mind is the Levush. Rav Mordechai Yaffe, who will meet briefly as well, wrote his own separate Shulchan Aruch style uh, book, but it was the Levush distinctly, and it will certainly play into, figure into the discussion of halacha, but not to the influence, not to the degree of influence of the United Shulchan Aruch. That's probably probably among the ba- major reasons why the Shulchan Aruch was immediately dominant and remains dominant in the world till today. If you want to know what the halacha is, you look it up in the Shulchan Aruch and you cite the Shulchan Aruch, and that's that's almost the end of the discussion. Not really true because we know that halachas living and breathing and porous and often is subject to greater discussions. But if the post scheme at least don't start, don't use as a starting point the Pesach of the Shulchan Aruch, they just kind of say their own thing and say, well, listen, it's a B'mfora Machaber. You can't say that. The Machaber says otherwise would be a reasonable refutation. Um, The Ramah relies heavily on Tosfos, that figures. figure is prominently. But as I mentioned, um, Ramah also inca- incorporates a lot of long-standing minhagim of the Ashkenazi world. I mentioned him citing the Maharil. The Maharik is another source. Uh, the Trumasadeshin is another source that he often cites. Um, he also has a tendency to, uh, if, if you had to characterize the Ramah, he is, like many posts, concerned about a Jew's Parnassah. And if there's a if in, in given halachic situation, if there's a concern of hefset maruba that a Jew might if, it might if he passed in a certain way in halacha lose a lot of money in the uh, in the balance, so he often will find a kula a leniency to try to help the Jew save money. Sometimes he can't. In one famous pasach, the Ramad tells us that. Um, if a person would be, we know that for a mitzvah's assay, a person is limited in how much he should spend. Up to a, home, up to a, up to a fifth of his income, he can buy that fancy s but not if it exceeds a fifth of his inc- income. But for a mitzvah lotase, the Ramah deduces, he brings from Gemara's and Rishonim, and he says that for a mitzvah said you'd have to lose everything. You'd have to lose the, sh- the shirt on your back, potentially. There's no excuse, monetary excuse at least, for violating a lav. And so if your boss would, practically, if a boss would come over and say, uh, you know, do a lav, uh, break, break a, uh, he brings it, Ramah brings it in, in- but it can come out in lots of situations. If a, if a boss at work would say, you know, tell well, the Chavetz Chaim explains if he would ask you to say L'shon Hara about your colleagues, your co-workers, and, he would, and you say, no, no, I can't do that. It's against my religion. And the boss would say, oh, that's fine. I, I respect all religions, but tell me, what will your religion do when you're jobless? And then you're basically threatening you with, uh, with being fired or telling, telling L'shon Hara, according to the Chavetz Chaim, you'd have to lose your job based on this Ramah. The uh, Ramah writes other books Another, His equivalent of the Beit Yosef is the Darche Moshe that he writes also on the tour It's also a much longer work and it explains why the Ramah will also be prominent as a bottom line halachic code um, in large part because the Darchei Moshe gives you so much of the background He also writes Chuvos, um, He's one of the major postgames of the time international reach he um, he happens to have his own income and is able to support his own yeshiva and, and the students who study there in Krakow. In 1553, at the uh, young, relatively young age of 33, he becomes the dayan of Krakow, means the, the major judge, which is a, 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 a tremendous accomplishment. Uh, you remember I mentioned this the other day. The oh, I did this in plan uh, I, the, he, he has a very smart, very sharp, and witty cousin, the Maharšhal of Shlomo Luria of Lublin, uh, not far, uh, n- another another city uh, in in, the, in in Poland, um, who was very critical of his grammar. Do you remember remember this? And the, so the Marshal wrote the Rima: Ata mankivs harim um You make the masculine, feminine, and the feminine, masculine, to which best part. The Rama is completely unashamed. He, in, he writes a tshuva in which he incorporates the criticism against himself of his cousin with, with, his, with all of his wit. And then he responds by saying, uh, my cousin, Maharsha, respectfully, he says, not everybody can be great as you in grammar. He says, and with all due respect, my psaq is better than yours. They didn't hold back when they were uh, when they when they felt you know changed to mind that they, that they were uh, that their reasoning was emas. The um, they also sparred in other areas. The marshal criticized the Ramah's references to Aristotle. You remember the old age, old now it's several centuries old debate over philosophy and what role, if any role, it should have in Jewish circles. The Ramah defends himself. He says, "I any time I refer to it, it's purely from the Uchim, It's from the Rambam's Guide to the Perplexed." I'm not studying the Aristotle per se. Um, and then he adds, he says, anyway, it's better to study philosophy than it would be to err in Kabbalah, which is a mistake so many people of their generation were making. Touche. Uh, in one of his tshuvas, and I alluded to this earlier, it's one that I actually like to teach from. It's one of my favorite classes to give. Um, he, it's understood as the first major Halachic discussion on the abstract topic of copyright. If you picture copyright, what exactly is the problem? Meaning, what is copyright? I write my own book, and I print it and publish it. And um, you come along, and you like my book. Wow, so nice of you. And you like it so much that you write your own book with a bunch of my stuff and you even cite me. So it's not plagiarism. You're not claiming it that they're your ideas. And then you print your own book and you go sell it as your own. But wait a minute. It's my book. You can't take my book and make money on it. Or can you? Well, what's the problem? See, it's not theft. Why is it not theft? you don't know the word. You don't own, well, theft is technically defined as stealing something tangible, at least worth shovel. Uh, it has, has to be shavacruza. It has to be has to be something in the world. Copyright it, it, um, copyright safeguards abstract intellectual property. It, it uh, today it extends to all kinds of relevant areas such as downloaded software and uh, media and whatnot that people now take left and right and so on. It's its own, it's its own separate discussion. Um, but this is one of the earliest issues because there really isn't a lot of halakhic precedent for this discussion. Um, there's an issue pre- the post game discussed is irrelevant to Ma- Dina Malchusi Dina. If there's a state imposed law about ensuring copyright, whether that pertains here, which is questionable. Uh, is it a so Hasagas Gwul issue? Um, many posts can come down, like the note of Yehuda will do in a couple centuries, with the issue of Zen, Zechosser, and which involves your profiting at somebody else's expense, which may or may not be an issue if you, if you infringe copyright practices. In the case that the Ramah was asked, it suddenly became very relevant. Why is it suddenly an issue in the world, of course? With the invention the of the printing press. press right? Suddenly, suddenly uh, the issue becomes very live. There's a certain publication of the um, Maharam Padua, Rabbi Meir, pa, Meir Katsanelen Bargum of Padua, of Padua uh, who was another one of his relatives, actually, but, and a big Tommy Chacham, who had revised the Rambam's Mishnah Torah at great personal expense and effort, uh, and come out with a new definitive publication called the um, Alozio Bragadini Braga publication of the of the Maharam Padua, of Padua's newly revised Yad Chazaka, um, And he just published it, and somebody apparently got a hold of his uh, printing plates, and a non-Jew named Gustianini, all of these are Italian names, if you've noticed, because that's where where all all these uh, uh, books are being printed these days in Italy, and he gets a hold of it, and he starts printing copies in the same year for less money, underselling the Maharam of Padua, and thereby uh, destroying him. And the Maharab asks the Ramah, what can I do? Do I have any rights? Is there anything I can do about this? And um, the Ramah, in a fascinating tshuva, finds four different areas, four different uh, reasons to uphold the, uh, the following. He places a harem, an excommunication, a ban, on any Jew who would purchase the cheaper, um, the cheaper non-Jewish version, the, the uh, Guistianini version, as opposed to the Alozio bragadini version, you're not responsible for these names on the test, uh, uh, version, and he puts them in the cherem. Among them, he talks about the importance of supporting Talmud and giving business to Jews as opposed to non-Jews, and uh, other other interesting that he, that he brings out. Um, and the cherim is effective, meaning Jews listen. Who's going to buy a copy of the Mishnah Torah unless they care about halacha? So if the Ramah, the El Dor, comes down with this sock saying, you know, you're going to be in cherim for buying this, that's going to be very effective. It, it, sometimes when rabbis do things, it's, they, they don't have the authority, especially in our days that rabbinic authority is waning, not, not because of rabbis, because of the people don't listen to them as much. Um, but, you know, sometimes rabbinic authority is undisputed, like in Telstone, there is a marida asra. The um, Rav Shulman, who sat in the front seat yesterday when we were driving home, his father's the Rav of Telstone, the Rav of Telstone, who, among other things, uh, gives out her sharing to the various small establishments, pizzerias and whatnot in Telstone. Several years ago, one of the pizzerias had Rav Shulman's, you know, uh, certificate, his his Tugda. And Rav went made a random check, unannounced. He, he has enough time to do that? Well, occasionally he does that because he cares about things like Kashrus. That's what a Rav does. And he went around unannounced and he saw that the store had um, ingredients in there that they were using that were not on the list that was approved. The, the ingredients actually were okay and kosher, but they simply were not supervised and okayed by the Rav. And the next day, the pizzeria went out of business. Because, you know, you're not the Rav's... Uh, approval, so that nobody in Tulsa is going to uh, patronize your store. It's amazing that he has that much time, that he has any time to do it, though. He makes time, it's a, you know, and Rob cares very much what the community eats. So, um, so, such, such, such as such halochim, when the Ramah puts it to Kheriman, um it has great ramifications to the point that the non-Jew, Guistianini himself, appeals to Pope Julius. You can always find a sympathetic anti-Jewish ear, almost always, in the Pope. Today it's not PC for the Pope to be anti-Jewish, I guess. But uh, once upon a time and through most of history, the Popes would be delighted to help you persecute Jews. And indeed, Pope Julius is is very much on board. They uh, he collects a bunch of testimonies that the uh, Rambam's work contained many lies against Christianity. It's actually not very favorable to Christianity. That's true. Uh, and in the the end result was the 19. I've referred to this uh, recently. The 1953 papal bull that's issued that results in great hostility for Jews. And remember the story of Dana Grazia yesterday and the Jews who had been persecuted in Italy. And therefore, they made up the, uh, the experimental community of Tiberius that didn't last very long. All this is happening right now. Meaning, if you're really paying attention to all the strands of history that we're telling, it's all kind of um, happening simultaneously. You know, the Machabers, uh, you know, is, is in spot. And the Ramad, meanwhile, is writing his Shuva on the copyright that becomes an international controversy. And they issue that they issue the Papal Bull that, among other things, um, prohibits Talmud study. The Papal Bull came out what year? 15, 1553. Oh, did I did I make it? Did I say 19? nineteen? I yeah. often do that. My mistake. Yeah, fifteen, fifty-three uh, is the papal bull against printing the Talmud and many other svarm, including certainly the Rambam's uh, greater uh, books. In fact, it's at this point in history a lot changes among other things. This is when Kabbalah starts being studied, partly because they couldn't study Talmud. So as a, as, as a replacement, as something else that they were still permitted to study, uh, Kabbalah starts spreading. Another interesting um, result, they outlawed the use of the word Talmud, and it's from this point in history that we find an alternate expression fall into use. Jews start referring to Shas, Shishas Sidre Mishnah, as a reference to the whole Talmudic uh, enterprise. Uh, the assumption that the word yeshu refers to yoshka results in all sentences and phrases containing the name being removed from the editions of the Talmud. Uh, that, it already, that was a process we already saw a few hundred years ago with the Ramban, but now it becomes uh, really official. The church starts literally, um, the census takes out, uh, abbreviates, and, um, and, and, and hacks up many of our holy works. Uh, Baruch Hashem, Jews being a crafty bunch, we keep original copies in hiding, so we have most of the original works. Um, Another offshoots of this whole discussion, so a lot of ramifications of this particular episode, in the next year, 1554, the Maharam um, signs a a decree, a decona, against publishing any safer without a haskamah. Haskama being an approbation, that the you should have somebody in the book saying, this is a good, legitimate book. And that works very well. Because if there's a book that does not have a haskama, at least it cries out, Darsheni, that you should be suspicious. Why isn't there a haskama? In days when anything goes, when you can write all kinds of nonsense and put it under a veneer of legitimate Jewish scholarship, and the world is so ignorant out there that anybody, I mean, one sees with the internet, people can write just any, any number of uh, nonsensical ideas, but couch it in, in, in some kind of convincing prose and get away with it. So a haskama becomes something sometimes imperative, and that becomes, um, that was already a phenomenon, but we're gonna see increasingly a, a haskama becomes sometimes uh, disqualifying if you don't have it. <laughs> And it becomes a precursor for the minhag of having many askamos today. Um, his, of course, his, his, one of his goals, of course, is that he would never have had this conflict with the non-Jew. The non-Jew, of course, would never have had askama in his edition and if he would have had a Haskama, and if everybody would have uh, adhered to such a takana, that you can only buy books with askamas, then there would have been no need for the harem, for the ban. So these are exciting times, lots of, lots of uh, interesting developments that, uh, that have long-term ripples. Uh, in, terms, in terms of our own lives, and, uh, copyright will certainly become a major discussion. Um, today, increasingly, there's a leniency because so much, especially with the uh, internet, so much, it's Zuto shalyam, according to Rabbi Yoshim, where so much is just out there that people trying to make money uh, on abstract property are probably just going into the wrong business and music producers and movie makers and all and all kinds of other intangibles uh, and software makers and so on have to increasingly write off their losses on, on, uh, on downloaded internet um, versions and figure out other ways of making money like advertisements, like uh, you know, whatever, whatever else will, uh, will bring in dividends. In 1556, the Ramah, going back to the Ramah now, flees Krakow, there's a plague and he goes to a nearby village of Shidlo. And he fled so quickly, he left his sparring behind. Tell me this little history test here. This sounds familiar, if you can identify another figure that sounds like from a previous point in history. And so he decides, it happens to be Adar's man around the time of year that we're holding. This is great, right? Yesterday was 87 in the, the Machavers, so now we're, we're holding near Adar. It was around Adar time, so he sits down. He says, okay, I don't have any books. What can I do to cheer, make myself happy? I know, I'll write a book. So he sits down to write a perush on Megillah's Esther. Uh, it's, it's one of his great works called Mechir Ya'in, The Price of Wine. Uh, there's a whole explanation, and of course, you know, he has the whole Megillah and all of its mefarshim in his memory banks. It's all there, so all he has to do is sit down and write it. Um, and in fact, that year, he finishes the book, Mechir Ya'in, and that's the, that's the gift he sends his father, Shlach Manos. And I, I, I defy you to top that in a Shlach Manos gift. You go be the Ramah and write your own impromptu book and send it to your dad. Um, does anybody know who I'm thinking of? Who does this to remind you of? He wrote a Gemara. Um, Almost. Oh, 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 that's good. I've got a better connection to make, but you're right. Uh, One of the Gaonim, uh, R- Netronai HaGaon, escaped to Spain and, and they didn't have a Gemara, so he wrote it from and, memory. And, and side, I was thinking in the Gemara of a different person. Uh, and we haven't got yet, the Biona Gaon. Right, the Vildegon has a different trick than he can do with memory. I, I don't know how many, I don't, there's not many, there aren't many people in history who can outdo the Vildegon's memory. Um, but I'm thinking of um, Rebbe Meir, who escapes to Asia, and he doesn't have a Megillah, so he writes one for memory. So they can read the Megillah on Quran. Uh The Ramah has some uh, famous, some infamous descendants, some of them are uh, Moses Mendelssohn, Moshe Mendelssohn who's sometimes credited with the founder of a reform movement, which is incorrect and probably unfair to both parties involved. In any case, Moshe Mendelssohn uh, was a descendant, as was, of course, his grandson, Felix Mendelssohn, uh, uh, who was a Christian at that point, um, and w- one, of, one of the uh, famous composers of classical music in the world. The, uh, not, not a point of pride in the, in the Ramah family. Uh, Rama dies on Lagba Omer. And... Um, Jews started a minhag of gathering in his kever, his yard site, to uh, honor him, and that would continue for over 300 years. After uh, on his yard site, that minhag of gathering by the Ramah. Uh, his shul, I was zolchet to uh, to guide there and to stand there and, and by his kever and it, 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 the, the, the graveyard. The, the basic horse is right behind the shul. The Ramah is there. The Bach is there. The Tosafist Yontef is there. Uh, some tremendous, tremendous. Uh, Giants of Polish Jewry, and uh, it's a connection that I've made. I've never seen anybody else make it. I just wonder about it. It's around this time in history that amid, that we trace the earliest origins for the Minag of associating Lagba Omer with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's yard site. There are many posting who hold that Shimon Bar Yochai's yard site is on Lagba Omer, some disagree. Meaning, and there's reason to question it. We don't have an early source, that that's it. Nowhere in the Talmud, for example, does it indicate which day or which date he died on, nor in the Zohar, for that matter. And um, so I question, it seems striking, that this minhag would develop around the Ramaz Kaverin exactly on that day, and they gathered for years and years and years, if maybe somehow there was some connection with that transplanting itself to um, Meron, in the uh, from Sfat, and they're making a, a pilula for Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, uh, it may or may not be true, but it's just a theory that I wonder about. Yeah. Which city is the in? Krakow. Major city till today. Krakow in, in the south of Poland. Where he lived most of his life. I visited him. Yeah. Very inspiring to see the Schule, You can see the Shul still today, and right right behind it is the, is the base of Kvaros. Yeah. Uh, his cousin is the Marshal, Ursula the Maluria, who was older. Uh, the Maharshal, not the Ramadha, The Maharshal actually can trace his descendants, he, his, his ancestry back to Rashi. And if he goes back to Rashi, that means he also goes back to? Yeah. Dovin. Because Rashi can trace his to Dovin and Melis. So there are families in the world who can do Is this. So you can trace to, their ancestry back yeah. to Dovin and oh, Wait, I ask a Yeah, you just did. Um, no, I mean, when did <clears throat> actually trace your ancestry all the way back to Dovin? Yeah. Does that means you might be a good candidate for race Galusa. No, no, I mean like not not just that. Maybe I, even Mashiach. You know, are you are you supposed to be treated differently like like uh, like from from family of family. You want to take advantage of the status now, Daniel, I see. I'm, I know for a fact I'm not from I don't uh, <laughs> If I ever run into someone um, like, we would yeah. say, like we say with so many other things, if if you want to take advantage in a financial matter, we might have to say to you, and this maybe pertains to a levy who's trying to extract my, my shone you know, loot, that, I, that I've stayed up all my, you know, I've just taken my Rishon on a bunch of apricots and now yeah, you want to go over and get a bunch of free apricots And your Meister Rishon, you know, so I might say as many folks can say, it was a la that somebody's trying to extract from me the proof's on you and therefore go prove your ancestry, Daniel. No, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm just saying. Oh, fine. No, no I'm just saying, cause like, if a coven gets a certain level of, of, of respect, you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. can only imagine how much Labadavka. We're talking about um, Mashiach ben David, not necessarily the entire line of David, even though they may all well, qualify. Anyone, well, anyone from that entire line of David is eligible to be the next. It's true, but I would also maybe something else has rubbed me wrong in the in the question as, as follows. I don't think our goal in life is to look for kavod. In fact, uh, there are any number of sources that would indicate quite the contrary. Herodif achar kavod. Somebody who, ch- I think Mishra tells us, somebody who chases honor, honor has a way of eluding him. And somebody who uh, eludes honor, honor catches up with him. So we're not looking for any perks or, 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 or uh, freebies. I think this person Rashi, maybe he might Rashi, be. He might be a candidate for being Mashiach. No, I'm just saying. That's just about it, as far as I know. Does he get a, a different level of respect? Rashi. No, we respect all Jews. Rashi, though, we just mean traces. Hello, who traces it back to? Ah, uh, is it? It was. It was it. Hillel you said I, that. I, ah, I, so I, maybe I, this. Maybe then this is a questionable one. That's and fair. And he's from the line of David, but not from the Jewish line. Yeah. Did I just destroy anything? No, I just, okay. The. Uh, Oh, great. Thank you for the... Some of that myself. Thank you very much. The um, Mahershal, then, um, his great works are the Yam Shel Shlomo, the Chochmah Shlomo, he writes on Shas, he writes on the Shulchan Arul. um They're major works. Um, I just offhand, I know that last year, uh, in the course of teaching Gemara, we only get to so many Rishonim and Ahronim in the course of the year. This year, in our Gemara year, for example, yeah, how many Rishonim have we really seen, maybe uh, at most a half a dozen, maybe a little bit more. Uh, in the course of last year, we looked up a Chokhmah Shlomo. Yeah, he's one of those uh, major figures that you come upon in the course of your learning, we made uh, even this year. Um, he uh, had studied under a great figure by the name of Shlomo Shachna in Lublin. Uh, among his, peer, among his uh, fellow students was the cousin, his cousin, the Ramah, Rav Yoshua Falk, who writes one of the major commentaries on the tour, the Prisha and the Drisha. Um, also a commentary on the, the Hoshen Mishpah called the Sma. That's that's, that's, and and um, Rav Chaim Ben Bitzalel, uh, who happened to be the Maharal's older brother. And we're about to meet the Maharal as well, the Maharal of Prague. So if you want to try to put your <coughs> general treat update your your rabbi tree and and figure out how everybody's interconnected uh a lot of gedoling knew one another he himself will later return to the same yeshiva in lublin and lublin being the place you just visited rabbi mayor shapiro of lublin from the same uh, great jewish community um he returns to become the Yeshiva. shiva actually stood in lublin by the marshall's kever, guiding it too and telling stories about his life it's vandalized but you can still make out the inscription on it and uh, I certainly can give honor to it. Um, he, his presence will attract students from around Europe, it's one of those places you want to be if you're serious about Torah, is Lublin in the 16th century. He, um, he's known for a very, his, his great independence, uh, his approach to learning Shas, to learning the Talmud, is he... Whereas other people often immediately bring the Rishonim, the Maharshal. The Maharshal like to, I've been calling him the Maharshal, right? With the Laman at the end. Maharshal, because not to be confused with somebody we're going to meet called the Maharsha, another great Jew. Um, he likes to trace the Sugiyas from Shas, meaning goes back to their original sources to understand them at their roots, before being biased and considering the various views of the Rishonim which is something that I just re- recently mentioned in Gemara Shir, if you can figure out on the page the essential pshad of the sugi before you leap to Rashi, you've actually done your own thinking for you and often you've anticipated Rashi, which is a great sign you're really holding nicely in the sugi. So that would be something that, 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 that's, that's something that Maharshal would encourage. Uh, you remember I mentioned Rav Polak, Rav Yaakov Polak's peel-pool approach that had become very much the rage People very excited by this uh, brilliant, but very much off the, off the charts kind of approach to learning. The Maharshal of Shlomo Luri was rapidly against that. He did not like the idea. He, um, he, he didn't like, he was very critical about a lot of phenomena. He did not like all these new halakhic codes. He was critical of his cousins, uh, the Ramaz halakhic code. He felt that they were reductive and that they made complex analysis less interesting to people. But he said, our tradition is based on much complex analysis. Don't reduce the sum total of Judaism of Torah to a bunch of one-liner halachos when there's so much more going on and so much more brilliance and, 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 and uh, reason for discussion. He also criticized the neglect of shutim. People should look up the shailes and shuvas where there's a wealth of information. Uh, he was critical of the mechaber. Of Rav Yosef Karo, uh, for he felt he, m- the Machaber didn't um, regard the Tosfos enough. He felt the Tosfos should, be, should, fig- should have figured more prominently, um, and as well as other Rishonim. Um, briefly, there was a, a figure that I mentioned. His name is Rav B'tzal Ashkenazi. He was a student of the Radvaz down in Egypt wrote a book called The the Kubetse. He actually didn't write it by himself. He had a uh, younger student who co-authored it with him named the Arizal. Maybe It's right. a time. I, um, there's some some periods we find ourselves with almost an embarrassment of riches. This is a century that's just chock full of golden. Such big names. And so I'm at the risk of inundating with too many names I do want to at least give you the feeling that wow, 16th century was a big one. Uh, so, so one of the names that certainly is rough, Rabbi Um in Egypt, one of his accomplishments, he took on the establishment. The establishment very much, the tradition of the uh, Jewish community in Egypt celebrated, understandably, their uh, their their and, and traced many of them could trace their origins back to the Rambam. In fact, the technical figurehead of the community was the nuggi, who almost always was a descendant of the Rambam. We met Ravavram Rav David, there were many, many others. Uh, we, re- we we remember that um, the of Viferach uh, went through and, and met the great-grandson of Shmuel of Rama. But this persisted for centuries. And just because you're born into a family doesn't necessarily mean that you're of the stature. It doesn't make you automatic a hador. You might be, you might not be. But that's not not automatic. And at this point, the system had had um, declined into a system of nepotism, where it was simply family connections that got you a good job. And the Shittu opposed opposed the whole institution, tried to dismantle it. Of course, it was incredibly political, and they resisted him, and he won. To his credit. And that obviously testifies to his stature. Um, The Shittu is a valuable source in learning Gemara. You should be familiar with it. He combines his own chidushim with Um, with with many chidishim of other Rishonim, it's one of these, it's one of the rare integrative texts incorporates lots of different views um, often clarifies them especially if you're stuck on Tosfos, one of the sources to turn to Shittimekubetze, sometimes you couldn't figure out what Tosfos means, but you look at the Shita and and and, and he he brings it to light Um, he also brings many um, lost sparring that without the Shittimekubetze we would have no knowledge of their insights either um, I'm going to spend more time, because this is, some of our figures really do uh, have a disproportionate impact. The next figure I'm going to talk about is Rav Yehuda Levi, Ben B'tzalel. Levi, of course, Yehuda is the lion, right, that's the tribe of Yehuda. Levi, one often finds, do you ever notice this, especially now in Europe, we're going to increasingly find names that reflect their tribe. So you have you have for example Yehuda Leib or Levi Leib, which is lion, because the emblem of Yehuda is lion. Gorariy. You? you have for example Binyamin Zev, because the wolf. Um, Yisachar. Okay, he's a Hamor. A Hamor is a donkey. That's not as as as, as desirable. But often one have a variation of donkey. They have Dov, bear. Yisachar dove is a common name that we find. Dov, you have um, Naftali Tzvi, Naftali Ayala, Naftali Tzvi is a very common name well, Natali, yeah. for Naftali. Yeah. And and one, one will increasingly find this connection in, in the, the names. There are a few other examples as well. Um, uh, the B'chor Shor, Yosef, Yosef, uh, having to do with Yosef um, Dov also sometimes when he hears. Uh, okay, the um, you would probably know him, though, not as Rav Yehuda Levi ben Bensalel, but the Maharal. The Maharal of uh, Moravia. You know of the Maharal of Moravia? Nicholsburg, otherwise? Um, and in his later years, another city called Prague. And you would probably know him as the Maharal of Prague, more, more accurately. Uh, he, too, descends from the Reishe Galusa, which means he, too, descends from Melech. There are a few who still can count their lineage. Trace their lineage. Um, he was here. Are a few of his accomplishments. Um, it was hard for me to pare it down. The Maharal is so huge in, in, in his impact on the world till today. Um, one of his one of, the, one of the things that he was known for. He was a very strong, even stronger in many ways. In the Maharshal. don't confuse the Maharal with the Marshal. Uh, in this new phase, this new craze about peel pool, he was very strongly he condemned it. He actually opened his own yeshiva in order to teach not Pilpul. He taught, you're going to learn Shas and the Rishonim with direct logic. No tricks, no gimmicks, just here's the trap. Let's get to the halacha. let's get to the Ashrafah. What are Chazal trying to say to us? He was, it's interesting, I picture this. Do you know who continues this, let's say in their emphasis of teaching is our own Holy Rosh yeshiva, Rav Lazarus Shlita is very much a fan of what do you call it? Bread and meat and potatoes or bread and butter kind of like not together hopefully. The the uh the uh, kind, of, kind of learning no frills just get people with the basic skills and the next bit is very much where Lazarus is a, is a proponent of this study Mishnah has anybody told you this before? Yeah, you do. I do good learn Mishnah if you learn Mishnah you learn some of the core ideas in Shas in all the, in all the Talmud and towards this end, it get people, and people weren't doing it in the 16th century, and so he, he, he promoted it. He, uh, he actually establishes a, a, an original idea, Mishnah study groups, where people would test each other and they would go through all of Shas, something that's some, maybe a little harder to do with all of the Gemara, but absolutely manageable with Mishnah. Um, one of his students, actually, is um, named Rav Yomtok Littman Heller, who is so inspired by his rebbe's emphasis on Mishnah that he ends up writing one of the great definitive perushim on Mishnah. Do you know who it is? The Tosso Yant- today. Oh, good. 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 Okay, fine. fine. Okay. Gotcha, thank okay. you. Sure, Rav Yomtov Lipman Heller is one of the students of the Maharal inspired by the Rav... R- Lipman Heller. Inspired by the Maharal's emphasis on Mishnah, and he ultimately writes his Perush. Uh, The Maharal is one of the few who actually takes the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, the fifth chapter of Pirkei Avos, seriously when it says to teach children uh, age-appropriate topics. And he said, "Don't teach them Gemara." He was critical of that. He said, "Based on the Mishnah, you should only start learning Gemara when you're 15." Which is not widely practiced today, certainly. Um, but the Maharal felt that um, if you force a child to learn Gemara prematurely, uh, it's going to corrupt them. Their minds are not capable of grasping the complex truths. They don't have a foundation. Whereas if you wait, if you provide a foundation step by step, th- when it's time to learn Gemara, they'll be fine. They'll be more than fine. They'll be finally adept at doing it. Um. You know that the Maharal created a golem? Oh, can you tell the story about that? <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for you, Aryeh. I know Arye yeah. is not here, but Aryeh is here. I know Akiva requested this yesterday and I guess he really wanted it so badly that he decided not to come today. The um but uh um, Yeah. I'm actually not gonna do the whole story, and it is a longer story, but I'll give you I'll give you I'll give you the essence um it's it's really well done there's a there's a, a teacher that i had when i was at yu dr dr schneer Lyman, who, who whose research i'm relying on and he really turns this into a fantastic story that he tells of, uh, of a contradiction between uh, because it doesn't make sense there doesn't seem to be any indication that the maharal had a golem um we have many works about the at this point in history already you know when we say date, hey, when we say the Maharal lived between 1520 and 1609 that's pretty accurate we have a lot of we have a lot of uh, uh, sources that confirm one another that those that those are right we have the among other things the Maharal's son-in-law who wrote widely about his father-in-law and never once mentions a golden well wouldn't you think that would be a salient detail to include and yet everybody knows about this publication of the the Golem of Prague, the Maharal, that was published first at the beginning of the 20th century by a very esteemed Talmud Chacham from, from Poland named Rav Rosenberg. And Rav Rosenberg was a serious Talmud Chacham who has many, he has a long bibliography and a lot of great great um, scholarly works on Hishonim, and Hachronim, to his credit, to his name. And so it's, it was hard for Dr. Lyman to understand how could he also write what seems to be a work of fiction, and he, he goes back and he finds that most of the story was lifted for, from uh, a parallel story by none other than Sir Arthur Canaan Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes. Wow. And so the whole thing seems preposterous, but it was given under the name of Eudel Rosenberg, who actually left Poland and survived and went out to Canada. Um, and. Um, and it uh, was a rough of a congregation in Canada and it ultimately the, the finally found the answer and he gives this over much more dramatically when he finally goes over the bibliography written by Revudel Rosenberg himself in which he lists all of his own self-authored books, including great Torah scholarship, and then he has a whole other category that he wrote that he calls in Yiddish folks. It was folks it was folklore that he wrote. And the question I think Dr. Lyman explains very uh, persuasively, why would he write a book inventing that the, the Maharal created the equivalent of Frankenstein. By the way, Mary Shelley get, got many of her ideas for Frankenstein based on the Jewish notion of a golem. And, and, and uh, but uh, why would he do this? You know, these are the days in the early 20th century of immense assimilation, and young people were ro- running, flocking to vaudeville, to the theater, to the Yiddish theater, with anything of distraction, often going away from Tyra. They were looking for fun and games. He was writing, therefore, a kosher book that captured the popular imagination that among other things celebrated the great figure of the Maharal. So if you were captivated by the Maharal's golem, his hope perhaps was, maybe you'd also pick up the Maharal's other great works. But that the golem itself, did he create a golem in the end? So I, the way Dr. Lyman ties it up, which I think is a masterstroke, he says he says um, absolutely, he created the Maharal, which is much more miraculous and wondrous than any actual uh, you know Frankenstein type of golem figure. His own works, as I'm going to describe, and the immense impact that they'll have on us and Klal Israel till today is far more impressive, and it just simply is not as cinematic. By the way, anybody here... Uh, are you interested in building your own golem? Yes. I did say this when I presented this in the Gemara year. So let me teach you how to do that. Yeah, You take notes? Here's how you do it. Uh, the Sefer Yitzira tells us... I just did this Gemara right now, and Sanhedrin mentioned this. The Sefer Yitzira uh, tells us that anybody can build their own golem. Here's the recipe. Um, you need to um, say 94,000 syllables, four per second... For three years straight, and you, while you're doing that, you have to know what the correct syllables are, and one other catch: you can't lose concentration during that entire period, even for an instant. And hey, sure. you, you did did like sleeping, How does that factor in? I'm sorry, you probably don't qualify. Okay, so but uh, anyway, with this, you can take this recipe and tell your friends. You, you too can build your own golem. You, you told us that. I did tell you this. No problem. Okay. Uh, I, you know, I think he'd be better off with Rashi Tosmos, but that's my own personal inclination. The um, Maharal redefines Jewish thinking. He has what you can call almost his own original genre of writing. Um, often his works are sold in a, as a collective uh, set. Um, they've been redone by a scholar today, Rav Hartman, who's now in, in England doing great educational things, to my knowledge. Um, it's often studied as mystical work. It certainly incorporates Kabbalah. It includes, among other masterpieces, his Perush Anagarata, a four-part series, a Perush Alagarata. His super commentary on Rashi called the Gur Aryeh, obviously self-titled because he's Rihuda Levi, the lion. Um, here's what he does, and other people after him are going to do this, but he's almost the first to, to take this approach. He combines deep Kabbalistic ideas together with revealed truths, things that we know to be the Torah, the Gemara, the Medrash. He combines these to give over what we would call I, I'm reluctant to use the term philosophy because I don't want to associate this with what's going on in, in Spain earlier, but he, he, what we would call Jewish thought. Deep ideas of Hashkafah of imuna into one apparently seamless whole. He writes about Agaratha a lot, he says that Agaratha contains profound ideas beneath its sometimes misleading surface, sometimes the surface seems to contradict itself. He says don't get caught up in that, that's not the point of Agaratha, even though it's often entertaining, it's besides the issue. He says, every saying in Chazal deserves careful consideration. If they said it, it, and you don't get it, that just means you don't get it, but not that there isn't profundity. He challenges anybody who tries to be wiser than the sages, and he takes on the likes of the Ibn Ezra and others who feel that they knew better than the sages of the Gemara. Um, He will have an approach that influences, I'll mention a few of the names in the modern era, Rav Tzadaka Cohen who, maybe this doesn't mean anything to you, but uh, eventually it will. You'll hear people quoting him widely. They have huge influence. I'll make the case at later points in history how Rav Tzadov very much cites the Maharal, the Svas Emes, the Avnei Nezer, Rav Kuk uh, in, the, uh, in, in the, what's associated with the Mizrahi world, uh, the Mikhtev Melia, of Dessler, the Pachad Yitzchak. The Pachad Yitzchak, Rav Yitzchak Chutner, says the Maharal, he, he says, he calls him like this, Maharal is Nistar Balashon Nigle. He writes about the hidden Torah in a language of the revealed Torah. So that it's accessible. You can understand the Maharal. And if you really are plugged in, you really know what's going on, you realize, wait a minute, he's revealing profound truths. In ways that I can understand. And suddenly Kabbalah... Is cast and we're going to talk about Kabbalah now because we're uh, we're going to start it today and we're going to continue on Sunday. Uh, the breakout in the world of Kabbalah and Kabbalistic study and uh, and discussion and great works and of course the preeminent Kabbalist about around the corner who's alive at this point in history. The um, who's slightly younger than the Maharal. The uh, <clears throat> yeah. Um, some consider of all of the Maharal's work that his masterpiece was the Netzach. What's called Netzach Israel. Netzach Israel is something that I'm recommending that you study, especially this time of year. It, in it, he outlines the uh, in just a few chapters the nature, the collective nature of the Jewish people. Why we're called the chosen people? What does that mean? We have a chosen status as God's people. Um, he then describes their path to Geula. And of course, Geula, the redemption, which figures prominently in the story of Yitzhia Mitzrayim. So, anybody often around Pesach time, you'll hear people give a shiur and they'll make reference to Netzach Yisrael, the Ma'or book. Um, another great work is Tiferes Yisrael, which in which he describes why Naseh and Nishma, when the Jews accepted the Torah in that regard at Har Sinai, why that's so incredibly significant he talks about Har Sinai, I mean this is a book I guess that's relevant as, you, as we read uh, coming down towards uh, Chagmas in Torah, he describes the difference between the first set of Luchos and the second set of Luchos, and then explains the function of all the mitzvos. I mean, it's like core basic reading, and his ideas obviously, like no ideas in Torah are original, everything goes back to Har Sinai, but his approach, his ability to explain things in terms that are new and exciting to a, a new generation, are, as we said, unprecedented and set a new mold. He describes, for example, in Tiferous Israel, he said Chazal deliberately concealed their words. He, you ever find learning Torah and Talmud kind of tough? Maral says this is the reason they do it. This is a great explanation. This, is, this comes up in my life. I, I refer to this, this idea. Listen to this. He says, why did the Chazal conceal their words? Why do they make it so hard to learn Talmud? Why don't they make it easier? Why do not they write our scroll? He says, no, that's on purpose, he says. He says, so that fools should not have access to them so easily. But every idiot should be able to open up an art scroll and be able to quote whatever they feel like. it. Well, people do that nowadays. That's a problem, the Maharal would say. He said, had the Torah been written explicitly, it would have caused disputes between the wise and the fools. And the fools would have believed that they understand the Sefar just as well as the, as, as the Chachamim I mean this is mamish, what you see today. Guy comes to Rev Lazarus and says, Well Rabbi, I already read the article, so I understand it better than you do. And this is what Chazal really mean, he says Rev Lazarus Shlita. He says, with Torah in the Maharal concludes, with Torah in the hands of the few, there's unity and there's authority. They're the people who really know what they're saying and what they're doing, and they have they have the last line, the last word. In fact, there's a mitzvah in the Torah. In in Parsha Shoftim, we have a mitzvah that difficult matters are meant to be devel, dealt with dafka by the Sanhedrin, by the gedolei hatorah, and it's called das Torah. And that's something that we're not supposed to confuse. And not every congregational rabbi, as is the style very much today, individual congregational rabbis decide, well, they're the gedolei hador. They're going to do things against the grain. Um, the maral said that's not that's not the Torah. The transmission of the oral Torah has always been through the leading sages. And if, it, right, if, if you didn't have it, not having it written is inherently necessary for our well-being. The fact that we have it written down now is what we needed to do because of the times were changing and we were concerned with losing everything, but it's ultimately uh, not always to our benefit. Maharal... I, I, I collect, you know, as I go through history, I, as I go through my life, I collect little tidbits and I throw them in my history class. So I was learning the Mishnah Burah, and I saw this one and I loved it, so I put it in. Maharal's Machmir on Niputz Lishma. It's a chobra, you don't have to do this. Niputz Lishma is, you know, how when you're making your tzitzi, you're tying your tzitzi, so you say Lashem with tzitzi. So, bring, if you do that at an earlier stage, when, at the point of niputs, which is when you're um, preparing the, ka, the, the wool in the first place, it's a higher level of Lishma, you're saying already back then, Lishem mitzvot, that's a higher grade. It's not required, it's not disqualifying. Most Tzitzit doesn't have that unless it specifies. But if you could do it, it shows a special extra care in the preparation of your mitzvahs. And so the uh, Mishnah recites that the Maharal was among those who was careful to only wear niput lishma tzitzi. Uh, since we're talking about it, Reverend Eliashev said that that's, since they're more expensive, only rich people should wear niput lishma tzitzi. And then they asked the Eliashev, who's rich? And he said, if people go out for pizza, that's already, you know, that's decadent. I'm sure Reverend Eliashev never went out for pizza. That would be the height of decadence. But if you go out for pizza, you could probably afford niput lishma tzitzi. The Maharal's fame would spread to non-Jews. In 1592, Emperor Rudolf II of Austria invited him to the Royal Palace. Um, Much later, in 1917, and not quite as happily, for us at least, the Prague municipality put up a statue. We're not supposed to make statues, we're not supposed to encourage statues, but they didn't ask our opinion. 1917 in Prague, they put up a statue in front of their central building in Prague where you can see it till today. Of the Maharal, or supposedly depicting the Maharal. Um, the Maharal has some famous students, the Tozov being one of them. Um, Rav David Gans, one of his students, wrote a book called the Tzemach David on Jewish history. So I mention it, because anybody gets a mention here who wrote a book on Jewish history that tries to set the record straight. Um, among the Maharal's descendants are Rav Zaman of Liadi, the original Lubavitcher Rebbe, and therefore all the Lubavitcher Rebbes, the whole Chabad Dynasty. Uh, Also the Chobas Yair, Rav Bachrach, uh, and and others would would descend, and his impact is far and wide Till today. His books are modern classics. On Sunday, Be'ezrash Hashem, we're going to um, talk about the explosion of interest in Kabbalah, what's that about, who are the primary architects, the Rav Moshe Cordovero, Rav Yitzchak Luria, and others, and of course Rav Chaim Vital as well.